Welcome to Keep Them Coming with Open the Doors Coaching. I'm your host, Kristen Thomas. I'm a relationship, dating, and sex coach based in Kansas City who just loves to talk to people about what goes on in their sex lives and relationships. Be warned, you should be 18 and over and probably be listening with your headphones. Thanks for tuning in. Joel Barrett of Joel Speaks Out is an LGBTQ writer, speaker, and gatherer. As a business mentor, he supports entrepreneurs from a wide variety of backgrounds. And as a queer advocate, he brings people together to socialize and support one another. We talked about by invisibility, his upbringing as a fundamentalist Baptist, his time in ex-gay therapy, also known as conversion therapy, and he shared some fun stories about presidential candidate Mayor Buttigieg. I hope you'll enjoy this interview with my business mentor, Joel, today. I feel like there's just so many things that we could talk about today because you've lived quite a life, Joel Barrett. Um, yes, I, mean, I have. Between your advocacy work, your work as a mentor, um, just kind of your happenstance of where you were living in South Bend, Indiana, uh, with a very famous presidential candidate yeah. from there. That was funny because for years, when you said South Bend, people either knew nothing about it, didn't didn't mean anything, or they would say, isn't that where Notre Dame is? And we'd be like, yes. Now it's like you say something, you go, Mayor Pete. Yeah. That's <laughs> funny. Not like I invite you Big to tell change. stories on Mayor Pete, but you know, that's, <laughs> I think that it's just current events. So, um, and that's part of what I want to showcase on my, my podcast is not just, not just talking about people's sex lives and their relationships, <clears> but <throat> I want to talk a little bit about like current political climate and what's going on in this show too. Cause that is, I think, mm-hmm. important in, in our lives right now. Um, especially just with what's going on. Right. So I first met, Joel, just for my listeners, um, through a program that I was doing with uh, UMKC Small Business Technology Development, Development Center. Center. Okay. We've gotten, we've let go of the T. Oh, you let go of the T. Okay. Yes. Yeah. It has SBDC. an extra acronym. Okay. Very good. Um, I was going through a program called Kaufman Fast Track, which has also kind of got rebranded from New Ventures to Elevation Lab. Elevation Lab, New Venture. Got it. Yeah. Gosh, it's I know. Confusing. It's a lot of letters and words. Right. But I was so glad to go through that program, especially early on with my business, because it helped me really get my focus and help me see, you helped me specifically as my mentor through that, help me see like, I'm not crazy doing no, this. Not at all. <laughs> um, but then we've been able to keep in contact because of our work with the Mid-America LGBT Chamber. Yes. Also another rebranding. Yes. Everybody's I was going to say, good Jeez. for you for remembering that. <laughs> As an ambassador, I better remember that, right? Talk about even more letters, M-A-L-G-B-T-C-C. Right. And you're, of which you're a board member. I am, yes. So, well, can you tell me a little bit more about what you do through your work through Joel Speaks Out? Um, well, I am I use my story, which is a very colorful one that you've referred to, um, to encourage people to live authentic lives not controlled by fear and shame. Uh, my story, in a nutshell, I grew up in a very conservative uh, Baptist home, and usually when I say that, people say, oh, Southern Baptists are like, no, I, my brand thought Southern Baptists were too liberal. <laughs> so I usually tell people, try to imagine the softer side of the Westboro Baptist Church. More fundamentalist. <laughs> Very much so, yes. Gotcha. Lots of rules and regulations and do's and don'ts and everything was black and white. But anyway, grew up in that environment. Uh, always knew I was gay, but obviously that was not something I could... Was not ever intended to be a part of my life in that in that world. In fact, the book that I'm writing that will be released this year is called Godly But Gay. It's my story, and 
usually when I say that, people are like, should it be cuddly and gay? And I'm like, no, because in the world that I grew up in, the two could never coexist. Mm-hmm. You could be godly, but as soon as somebody found out you were gay, you would never be considered godly again. Yeah. You know? So, um, anyway, married, three kids, went into ministry, was a Baptist pastor myself. Um, in my mid-30s, um, everything kind of came to the pinnacle of, i got to do something about this. Uh, so I put myself through three years of ex-gay therapy through Exodus International. Mm-hmm. So I spent three years in ex-gay therapy, which is the same as conversion therapy or reparative mm-hmm. therapy or whatever name you want to call it. <laughs> yeah. Mine was of the uh, ilk of more pray the gay way than anything, a lot of mm-hmm. behavior modification, so on and so forth. Spent three years in that before I said, enough, I'm done. And so today I write and I speak. I gather people around subjects and topics to talk about. I've had my own podcast. I'm getting ready to relaunch a form of my podcast in more of a webinar mm-hmm. uh, series called Joel Speaks Out, and then it will be whatever that thing is, like uh, underneath that. So I'm going to be starting with Sexual Sunday School again. So Very cool. Uh, and I'm sure that I will want to have you on as a guest for that. I love that. Absolutely. So anyway, I, I enjoy creating spaces, creating community, and creating spaces to have safe, friendly conversations about potentially um, hot topics, difficult subjects. Because um, I... I feel, much like you, um, that there aren't enough of those kinds of places to just have an honest conversation. And yeah. when it comes to sex, I always say everybody's doing it, but nobody's talking about it. Yes. <laughs> and so... We're all here because of it. Yes, exactly. But it's so, supposed to be the dirtiest thing ever, and you're right. supposed to talk about it. So that's what I do through Joel Speaks Out, and every, everything I do can be found under the brand name of Joel Speaks Out. My website is joelspeaksout.com. Very good. Thank you for that. Your stories actually made the rounds around the internet. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I actually was clicking through one day and saw a Guardian piece because mm-hmm. you you and your husband just really told your story last year. Now, it started off kind of with a story core with NPR. Well, Is that right? I've been telling my story in some form in uh, lots of places. Um, depending how far back you go back, you can find me in a lot of publications and news sources and things. But... Last year, um, two things happened almost at the same time. Um, StoryCorps came to Kansas City, mm-hmm. and my husband and I recorded some of our story together in the StoryCorps booth. And around within a week of that, I was also on stage in Chicago performing my story for the podcast Risk, which is uh, a great podcast for unfiltered stories. Oh, okay. Because it doesn't... Uh, it doesn't air on the radio so therefore nothing is off limits it's just a podcast but it's a great storytelling podcast so I was on in Chicago recording that performing that on live on stage before a live audience which was Mm -hmm. really cool then StoryCorps so both of those came out like almost simultaneously so I think that was a good media bump and they got picked up by a lot of people and so yeah I got a email from a news source in the UK and they didn't really tell me what the news source was and I was kind of skeptical at first. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, is this legit? Right, because they you have know? so many tabloids over yes. there. You don't know what they're going to say, what the headline will right. be. Right. I was like, is this... And, and honestly, some of, one of the stories was a little clickbaitish, but they did fine with the story. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I when it all came out, I was like, okay, that's fine. A lot of pictures, kind of a click-through type story, mm-hmm. but... 
I didn't feel bad about anything or the way they covered anything. It was a little odd experience for that one. I don't know if it's the same one you saw or not, but I did most of the writing. Oh <laughs> like, my god! Like, give us your they, story. We'll yes, just publish they it. like they like sent me this long list of questions uh-huh. and like had me answer them. And it felt like, man, I'm writing this story for them. But I wasn't actually trying to write a story. I was just trying to answer their questions. And then they basically just kind of took all my answers and put them in there. So it was probably not the most well-written story, but it covered all the facts. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Interview style is a little different than just answering questions. Like I never once talked to an actual person Uh, in that process. I mean, there's so much (laughs) there's nuanced in a conversation you have with somebody. So, But I did read that story. I think it was The Guardian. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, I thought it was well done. So there was nothing in it that made me go, they're not representing Joel. Yeah. And that's how I felt. Or or our region or like, you know, because sometimes they like to, people like to think so badly about the Midwest. And yeah, we've got, Mm -hmm. we have our issues here certainly, but there's a lot of good that's happening around here too. That's also why I chose to stay here as a coach rather than go to the coasts. Mm-hmm. Um, there were lots of people who thought I could get more clients in more progressive areas. Yes. But I think that we need the help here. Yeah. I, I love I love living here. It's great. And I how long have you been in Kansas City again? Um, a little over three years. And it's just been um, a really great city. I love it. It's very dynamic and alive. And I think it's a great place for the LGBTQ community. Um and we just love it. Yeah. I mean, it's not anywhere you live. I've, I'm always of the philosophy or whatever you want to call it that you you make the most of where you live. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you're not happy, it's not because of the location. Doesn't mean you couldn't find a better place to live, but you take yourself with you. So you've got to learn how to make the most of where you are living mm-hmm. and recognize what it can do and what it cannot do and be okay with that. And then you can make choices. But if you're moving because you feel like the place is to blame, you're probably going to find the same problems wherever you move to. Grass isn't always greener yeah. in another location. Mm-hmm. So, But I'm glad that you've found um, community and friends and uh, that this city has been good to you. Yeah. So what do you think it is, though, about Kansas City that makes it so friendly to the LGBT community? Well, I honestly think it's because... Kansas City, I, I don't think people here think about this, but when moving here, we didn't really know anything about Kansas City. Mm-hmm. So one of the first things, I, I, we're research guys, you know, so we're, David and I are both, you know, checking all kinds, everything we can about Kansas City. If we're going to be moving there, we need to know what's up. Because you know? you're coming here for his job, is that Yes, right? his yeah. job. And he had already accepted the position, so we were coming here regardless. And our thought was, well, if we don't like it, we can stay there a couple of years and then move, you know, kind sure. of thing. We'll make the most of it. and um, But so, like, one of the things that I did immediately was thinking, well, man, if we're moving to Kansas City, because it was, felt like a huge change from where we were at geographically. So I'm thinking, oh, well, if we're in Kansas City, we're probably closer to, and I would think of some major city that we like to go to, and I would Google it, and I'm like, oh, no, we're not any closer to that. Like, and <laughs> oh, it was, was like, an eight-hour drive to Denver? Yeah, oh. it was like everything was eight to 12 hours away, and uh-huh. I'm like going well, wait a minute, what is Kansas City close to? And then I realized it's not close to anything. Nothing. Like, it's an island, you know. I remember telling David, I said, Kansas City's like an island, and mm-hmm. what if we don't like it? We're going to be stuck <laughs> there, you know. Because in South Bend, Indiana, it was a really good kind of hub location. Mm. We were 90 minutes from downtown Chicago. Oh, wow, okay. And so, you know, we could go to Chicago, we could go to Indianapolis, we could go over into Ohio, we could go up to Lake Michigan. You know, like, there was this great 
uh, circle that we could, you know, we were like kind of the hub of. So when I got here and realized, oh, it's not that way here. And then I realized after living here for a while that for a lot of people, Kansas City is the big city. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so this, they have looked to Kansas City as a haven, a safe space, especially for the LGBTQ community. Because I've met so many people who come from like a hundred mile radius of mm-hmm. Kansas City from some, they name some small town in Southern Missouri or something, you know. And I think Kansas City has been really poised for many years. I mean, much of the uh, gay rights movement, as it was called back then, much of that began here in Kansas City. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah. yeah, which is like fascinating to me. But I like, oh, I get it. Because we didn't have the luxury of San, a San Francisco or a New York or even a Chicago. You know, people around this area, can't. if it wasn't going to happen, if it was going to happen anywhere, it was going to have to be Kansas City. Mm-hmm. So I think that has poised Kansas City to be um, a real haven, so to speak. That doesn't mean it's not without its inherent problems like any community it's not perfect but i do feel that kansas city is a very safe and welcoming place for the lgbtq community so good to hear yeah yeah i sort of feel like i'm just new to the community i mean i've always been an ally but Mm -hmm. uh, as an adult as an ally i had to kind of grow out of some of the church teachings Mm -hmm. um, and learn my lesson that was you know definitely part of my college experience was understanding Lots of things about lots of different people, including like, oh, there's no reason to harbor those feelings that the church has told me to about mm-hmm. gay people. But anyway, I only came out as bisexual a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. but that's one of the less visible groups it's within the, the LGBT the community. the invisible group. Yes. <laughs> it is. I, I was being and nice with less visible, but yes, it feels very It really invisible. is invisible. Yeah. And unfortunately, there's a lot, it continues to be a lot of misunderstanding about bisexuals and bisexuality and a lot of disbelief yeah um you know uh and i think more so amongst gay men than any other part of that spectrum uh gay men have always looked at uh, not always i shouldn't speak in that broad but i think it's not uncommon for gay men to be like, yeah, right, you're bisexual. Like, yeah, you're just, this is just a little stopping point, point on your way. You'll, you'll get to where we are eventually. You know, and it's a yeah. very patronizing and, and belittling kind of way of looking at it. And I know a lot of men, because I have some very good bisexual friends and who have been with both par- kinds of partners, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people are like, wait a minute, what? They're with who? I don't understand. How does that work? And it's like... It's called bisexual. Yeah. Yeah. And because there's this sense of, well, once they've settled in with a partner, well, then they're either gay or they're lesbian, mm-hmm. you know, especially if you're talking about man or woman. Like, well, and it, if you're bisexual and you're with a person of the opposite gender, then you don't really ever get the opportunity. Everybody just immediately assumes you're straight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you would have to like be, well, if you care about that, you'd have to be coming out all the time. Mm-hmm. And then the moment you, if that relationship ended and you were with someone of the same sex and everybody's like, oh, I thought you were straight, but now you're gay, you know? And I don't know why it's so hard for us to understand, for many people to understand, but yeah, unfortunately it is. And hopefully, you know, we still have a B in the LGB yes. and yet it's invisible. I think it just takes people talking about it. Yeah. It's going to take continuing to bring it to the forefront. Yeah. And like you say, that continually... Coming out. I mean, I do have a lot of uh, bisexual female friends. Mm-hmm. 
fewer bisexual male friends. And that is the least out group of mm-hmm. any group amongst LGBT, yeah. even less than trans men. Mm-hmm. So I have, I have lots of bisexual friends on, you know, both male, female, trans, mm-hmm. um, you know, who identify as bisexual and, uh, yeah, I, I you know, I think it can get confusing too for people that are outside of the, people in the LGBTQIA community have had lots of conversations about this and there's still misinformation. So even to have a conversation with a, a straight identifying person or hetero identifying person mm-hmm. is more complicated because they've not had those conversations. Yeah. I actually um, had a conversation last week with somebody. Um, they know someone that we know who is trans and is, um, you know, presenting as female now, is female, and they knew them when they were a man. And so we kind of had made that connection. I had been at Pride that day and was mm-hmm. talking about it. And, of course, he said, oh, I know someone who's uh, transgender. Um, he's, and then, so yeah. then I go, well, she. And, you know, I had to gently remind him about her pronouns. Yes. And he had a lot of questions. And, and a lot of it was about, well, if if he, when he was a man, liked women, but now she likes women, and trying to again, yeah. put that mm-hmm. into the category of like, well, is she gay or is she straight? And it, I was, it goes back to its own kind of binary. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I need to know what box to put you in. Yes. And and that's, you know, in, in all fairness, as human beings, that's how we organize information. Mm-hmm. We come by it fairly or justly, so to speak. We as human beings like to have everything in neat, tidy categories, boxes. And so it's no different when it comes to people. We feel like, oh, help me understand you. In order to understand you, I need to be able to clearly define all four sides of your box. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we can't, it just kind of blows our mind. Yeah. (laughs) And trying to explain it to them as as in a way that wasn't putting her Mm -hmm. into a box... I was like, well, I can't speak for her. I've not asked all these mm-hmm. questions that you're asking. But what I can tell you is she has always been a she. Mm-hmm. Even when she was presenting as male. She has simply gone through a process that has affirmed her gender. And she yeah. has always liked women. Okay? So, and her partner, who is also trans, has always been a woman too. Mm-hmm. So she's simply gone through that affirmation too. So think about it as like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I think if people could ever just realize that so much of anything related to gender, sexuality, identity is much more a spectrum mm -hmm. than a point. Yes. And people, you know, we, and that goes against everything we ever were taught as kids in society, you know, um, fortunately, other cultures, I mean, the Native American culture was equipped to deal with that, and lots of other cultures have been, but ours has been very much black and white, you yeah. know, and I, I try to just point people to say, you know, it's a spectrum. Like, you don't even know today, like, as much as I say, I am a gay man, and I am only attracted to men, the... I, who am I to say that if I'm in a bar and this really hot guy comes up and starts hitting on me and I'm like, oh, let's go get it on, only to find out that he's a transgender man, how do I know that I, I mean, in a sense, I already found myself attracted to him. Right. 
So now it's just a matter of the function of sex, yeah. which doesn't have to be any different than other situations. So it's like, I feel like I no longer say, oh, no, no, no. I, you know, I don't try to establish, I won't do that, or I'm not attracted to that. I'm like, you know, it's a spectrum and presented with the right opportunity. I may surprise myself. There you go. <laughs> Like that. <laughs> the two spirit thing is something that I had heard about for a really long time. Um, and I think it's come up more in conversations lately as people mm-hmm. are trying to talk more about how this isn't something that's new. No. And I, cause I think that a lot of people are still feeling like, Oh, well now that gay marriage is legal. All these things are happening. It's like, no, no, these, these things have always been there. It's simply been that for the last couple hundred years, our particular society has repressed mm-hmm. things. A lot of it has been religious-based, um, and I also, here in the States, blame, so to speak, uh, Hollywood, mm-hmm. because of we've been taught what it is through Hollywood, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to have sex, you know, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Between Hollywood and religion, we've been given a lot of, of uh, boxes to be in, so to yeah. speak. Yeah. Yeah. So, can we talk a little bit about Mary Pete? Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I had no idea about this uh, story until you kind of started posting some things this year. Um, but you actually had the opportunity to do something really cool for Mary Pete, which was help with throwing his coming out party. <laughs> we did. It was a community coming out party. So, um, you know, South Bend's a small town. Uh, I know Mayor Pete. I mean, we're not like, I don't have a cell phone and can text him right now or anything like that, but... He knows who I am. I know who he is. You know, we work together. Um, I worked for downtown South Bend, uh, managing the down a 30 block area of downtown South Bend. And okay. He was mayor. And so, you know, our organizations and departments all work closely together. And it was not uncommon, you know, to work with him. And um, I will say this about Mayor Pete. Um, before he came out, nobody knew how he identified. Okay. This wasn't like some, oh, come on, we all know you're gay. When are you going to come out? It, honestly, I did everybody was kind of like, I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. And like, I it's like kind of like wanted to believe he was gay, but he just did not give off any, I'm, I have really good gaydar, <laughs> really good gaydar. And yet, even with him, I was kind of like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, you know. So then when he came out, it was kind of like, yes, you know, we it's won. Yes. And um, so he, he did that very smartly. Pete is a very strategic man. Um, he really is thoughtful and thinks through things. And he doesn't, he doesn't just fly off the handle and do something. Um, and so he, uh, he came out in an editorial to the newspaper okay. that morning. And I, I was like one of the first people to post about it. I, for some reason, I'd read it early that morning, and I was like, oh, look at this, you know? And uh-huh. um, so, and myself and some other friends were, had, David and I and our, my friend Willow and some others were 
always very involved in the LGBTQ community. Uh, we helped run um, what was called Guerrilla Gay Bar, which was a monthly takeover. And um, we'd worked with just a lot, you know, so it wasn't uncommon for us to kind of organize some things. And mm-hmm. so that morning, Willow and I talked and we were like, we have to have a coming out party. Like, because everybody was so excited about this news. Mm-hmm. And so we organized a quick, like, impromptu one downtown at a local pub and uh, brewery and out on the sidewalk. And it was under the marquee of uh, an old theater there. We had the marquee uh, for him. And people just started showing up. And, and we had let him know we were doing it. And he, he politely declined to attend because he felt like it was already making this huge splash. Mm-hmm. And he was like... He really appreciated it, but he was like, I feel like this might be more distracting than helpful. He's like, but I appreciate you. And and honestly, we would have loved him to be there, but at the same time, we all, we didn't care. Like, yeah. We were celebrating him regardless. And so we had like, I don't know how many people, it felt like maybe 200 people showed up, but we were all on the sidewalk and we were toasting to Pete and it was cool. That's it was awesome. very cool. And he appreciated it. He totally knew where we were coming from. He just, for political reasons, felt like maybe that wasn't a wise thing to... He didn't want to look like he was kind of using his right sexual orientation coming out as some kind of political move. So. Well, and then there's the mm, extreme hetero mindset. I mean, extremist, which is that like you're throwing it in our faces now. Yeah, yeah. Which is... We can have a whole other conversation about that. Um, but I, I get where he's coming from because politically he's got to um, toe a different line than a lot of mm-hmm. us do. So. And shortly thereafter, Chaston came on the scene. Mm-hmm. And um, we were like, oh, Pete's got a boyfriend, you know. And uh, love Chaston. He's he's just a great guy. And, yeah, you know, people oftentimes ask me about Pete, and I am certainly not way trying to speak for them mm-hmm. or him. Or try to act like I have some kind of special relationship with them. They right. have people that have far closer relationships with both of them than I do. But I will say this. I know them both. I've worked alongside Pete for a number of years. And um, what you see is what you get. Um, how he appears right now on national media, that is Pete. That's mm-hmm. how he operates. There's he's not, authentic. Yeah. He's just real. He's common sense. So, yeah, he's, I'm, I'm excited for him. And one of the things I appreciate, like, I, I feel like, you know, we're a year, a, literally a year away from a primary. Mm-hmm. So a lot can happen in a year. And we yeah. have, what, 150 candidates right now? <laughs> so it feels like, <laughs> You yeah. know, and so, but what I appreciate, I've told many people, is regardless of what the ultimate outcome is of whether or not he's in the White House, I love the way he's changing the conversation right now. I and agree with that. That, in some ways, right now is more important than the White House. Yes, because he's he's been very uh, pointed in the way that he's speaking mm-hmm. about Trump and about what's going on with the world. But he is just so intelligent, and he is so informed and on mm-hmm. point, and just steady. He's measured, yeah. He and that's that's been Pete, and that doesn't mean he like any other candidate has always done everything right, or it doesn't. Figured everything out, but I appreciate that he's he's having the kind of conversation, changing the way we talk about things. Yeah, he seems like he would have been the uh, debate champion in yeah. high school. Yeah, the way that he talks, I and which I appreciate actually, 
it's nice having... He's I, a very smart guy. God, I could see him just mopping up the floor with Trump in a debate. Oh, my God. <laughs> just someone like him that is just... He's a master of speech, but he also, like, he really understands the world. Well, and I appreciate... I mean, granted, it's early in all of this, but I appreciate that when he addresses some of the nonsense, ridiculous things, mm-hmm. he doesn't just hit back. He's more smart... You know, he's smarter in the way he chooses to engage about those things. Mm-hmm. And usually it's kind of a disengagement. Yeah. It's just kind of saying, you know what, I'm, we're not going to give that a lot of energy. Which to me is really smart and refreshing. He's very wise. Yeah, because so many people want to get into the, you know, throwing mud back and forth. And to me that only energizes all of that. And especially with Donald Trump, he relies on reaction. Yeah. And so the less energy you give him, the more frustrated he is. But at the same time, it, he's, you know, there's a, that's why I think he's the one to foil Trump. There because is he an doesn't old, feed into the machine yeah, that yeah, Trump exactly. has created. There's an old proverb from the Bible, from my Bible days. Uh-huh. Uh, there's two proverbs that say something that seems totally contradictory to each other, but they both have wisdom. And one um, is, and I'm going to use the King James because that's what I grew up with, okay. but answer okay. not a fool according to his folly, uh, lest he be wise and think he's like you, something like that. And so that principle there is like, you know what, don't even give it any energy because by doing it, you're dignifying that and then they think they're smart because you're actually giving time. time. And then the other one is answer a fool according to his folly. And there's a little more to it. But the the two main phrases in that is there are times when you need to be like, I'm going to speak to this. And in that situation, you're not lowering yourself, you're raising the conversation. Mm -hmm. But you have to be wise and smart and knowing how to do both. When to say, we're not going to engage, or when you say, I'm going to correct you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I think Pete's good at that. Yeah. I'm just excited to see what's going to happen coming up because no matter what, no matter how far he makes it, it's an interesting conversation because he really is the first out candidate. He's made history. Yeah. No I matter know. what happens, this will be in the history books. Yeah. Although, don't you look forward to the day when we're done with the first? Yeah, I feel like we're still so far away from that. I know. That it's like right now we still need them. Well, and how sad was it that with the election of Sharice Davids around the Kansas side, that was, she was one of two, or the first two mm-hmm. Native American women elected to Congress. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're still talking about the first black or African American person in whatever. You know, mm-hmm. I'm like, we have a long way to go before we just say, this person was elected. <laughs> yeah. It's just... Yeah. I doubt I'll even see that in my lifetime. No, I, I don't mean, think so either. And we're I not think, that far off from age in each other, but well, in our lifetimes, I, I should say. That, but I don't think so either. I mean, I think we have a long way to go in that regard. Yeah. And it's okay. I don't mind it at all. Like, I mean, Pete being the first openly gay man, you know, and I've heard some people criticize that. And I'm like, well, that's kind of important. It's very important. Yeah. Like... That's not saying that that makes him more qualified or it doesn't say anything about him, but it's important to say historically, this has never happened before. And I think that we need to be talking about. Yeah. Doesn't matter what the ticket is, I'm voting for the ticket. That's what I did. So I've been saying, like, well, I, I want to have some influence on who's on the ticket for sure, but at the end of the day, I'm yeah, doing whatever I can I'm, to get um, his I'm royal like pain told, in the ass out of yes. the office. 
I have said, I think I'd vote for a toad if it were running against me. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you 100%. No, I can't take it. It's just like, no, this is, yeah, anyway. <laughs> I don't need to go into that. <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit more about, you know, with, with Joel Speaks Out, what are some of your, your goals as as a mentor, as an author, as a speaker? What What's your vision for your business? Well, when I came out, which I usually tell people I didn't come out, I oozed out. It was a long, slow process. But there was a moment that I consider the turning point where um, after all I'd gone through, my upbringing, the religious craziness that I was in, XK therapy, you know, just so much. And carrying that burden, there's a quote by Maya Angelou, which I can never remember exactly, but basically something about there's no greater agony than bearing a story untold inside of you. And may not be the exact quote, but that's the general quote. Um, and I attest to that. I know what that's like um, to live for, you know, 30-some years with that untold story. I'm working without even realizing it, having formed your whole life around protecting that untold story from ever being told. And so that's... That is an agony. It's a burden. It it changes who you are. Um, if you see pictures of me from my ministry days, most people are like, two comments. One is, that's you. And then the two is, you look so much younger now. And then those are old pictures from like 1999. Mm. So it's a long time ago. And yet it's true because I was such a miserable, unhappy person. And I knew how to put out the right things on the outside. Mm-hmm. But it was awful. So I say all that because when I did come out the day that I basically said, all right, uh, I mean, I had a conversation with God. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a, Do you want me to tell this story? I'd love it if you Okay. Might. So after three years of XK therapy and not feeling like I was making any progress, I emailed my original XK counselor who was the head of Exodus International for the state of Indiana. So I'm thinking, Exodus was the largest XK ministry in the world at that time. Um, connected to every organization, lots of people, you know. So I'm thinking they ought to have this database of success stories, you know. So I emailed him and was like, look, I'm getting really discouraged with this because I don't feel like I'm making any progress. Mm-hmm. And if this is as good as it gets, I don't think I can keep doing this, yeah. you know. So I'm like, can you connect me to some just some real life guys like myself that uh, will will say, oh, Joel, hang in there. It's just a little bit farther. And it's so much better down the road, you know, kind of just to be an encouragement to me to give me some kind of hope that this wasn't as good as it was going to get. And he responded to my email and told me he could not. And... When I asked why, he said, well, everybody uh, that you describe falls in pretty much one of two categories. One, this is a part of their life that nobody knew about. They are ashamed of it. They took care of it. Closed chapter. We don't talk about it. Or two, this was part of the life. They took care of it, moved on, but they're afraid if they were to talk to somebody like you, they would fall right back into it. And so literally on that day, I realized, I didn't think about it in these words then, but I, I realized now, I was like, so you're telling me I get to choose between fear or shame. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no. And so 
I wadded up that email. I had printed it off. I wadded it up, threw it down, and I was like, and I, I said out loud that I'm done. And I said, I have a life to live. And I'm going to start living it. I can't live this way anymore. Mm-hmm. And then I had a little conversation with God. Um, and I said, hey, you know, God, according, if you are who I've been taught you are, then you know me better than I know myself. You love me more than I love me and anybody else. And you want the best for me and so on. I just kind of reiterated everything I'd been told about God. And I was like, so you also know that I have been trying my hardest all of these years. You know that I've given this ex-gay thing 110%. Like, you know all of these things. And you also know it's not working. Mm -hmm. So I said, so I'm just telling you today that from here on out, I'm living as a gay man. And I don't even know what that means. But that's what's going to happen. And if you have a problem with it, you let me know. I will be listening. You do whatever you need to do to catch my attention. Like I, And that was hard for me to say because from my background, that meant kind of the equivalent of being struck by lightning yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, like you know? you're inviting God to smite yes, you. but I kind of was because mm-hmm. I was like, I'm done with this crap. <laughs> so Well, and that's the expectation that was set too, was yeah. that if you're not living by God's word or the way that the Bible mm-hmm. tells you to, that you will be struck down right. or you will pay a price. There will be consequences. I, you know, envisioned all kinds of things. My children dying, disease, you know, whatever, everything. anything. You, but I also said... But I don't really care at this point because I can't live this way. So I'm going to move forward. If you if you need to kill me, then kill me. I'd rather be dead than trying to live that way. You know. So I had that discussion with God and just was like, I'll be listening. So you let me know. Mm-hmm. And today I look back and say, you know, God said everything by saying nothing at all. Um, and I forget where we were going with this. I wanted to tell you the backstory before. Oh, purpose of Joel speaks out. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, what was it? So. Part of that was also within a short period of time after that, I realized, number one, there are so many people like myself. Mm-hmm. I had met them. I knew about them. You know, I'd sat in these group sessions. And so part of me was like, you know what? I will never shut up about this because I don't want people going through what I've gone through. I don't want, there aren't enough voices out there speaking this kind of truth mm-hmm. um especially at that time i didn't know any i mean there wasn't you know you you, you had extremes you had like what i would i wouldn't say is extreme but in the sense like at that time like dan savage mm-hmm. you know yeah that like you had these like what i would call for me at that time extreme lgbtq voices who yeah. were advocates many of which had spent their whole life advocating you know and it is kind of that fist pounding. Yes, like but they had not gone through face, what I had gone through. Face. And then there were all those on the ex-gay side. And I'm like, where are the people like me that said, I did this? I knew one, one author, Mel White, mm-hmm. um, who used to be, who was affiliated with uh, Liberty University at the time, uh, before he mm, came out, and okay. Jerry Falwell and all yeah. of that. He was a ghostwriter. And so anyway, he had a famous book called Stranger at the Gates, I think is what it's called. And, but like, other than that, I'm like, where is the hope? Because I felt like I had lived my whole life with no hope whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So part of me was like, okay, I will speak out then. I will share my story. 
I don't mind being vulnerable. I don't have anything to lose at this point. Right. So I started sharing my story and uh, my goal was to just get the word out and to encourage people that it's okay to be yourself and to live authentically and that fear and shame should not be a part of your life in that way. They should not be controlling forces. We all have times that we feel fear or shame, mm-hmm. but they should not control our lives, those forces. They're negative, so to speak. And so um, that was my goal. My target audience, while I love reaching anybody, I've talked to all kinds of groups, uh, who I seem to resonate the most with are 40 and up men. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, they relate to some portion of my story that might be because they were, they're married right now or were married or have children or were in ministry or um, relate to some portion of the ex-gay part, the faith part, the married part, the kids part, the coming out part, the being in the closet part, you know, like, yeah. and so that's, uh, tends to be who I spend a lot of time with. They communicate with me a lot. Um, <clears throat> so I try to get that message out. Um, along with that message is kind of the gathering part is where fear and shame intrude so many other parts of our lives too that aren't even about necessarily coming out. But whether that be sex, what I have found, sex relationships, dating, you know, what I have found in the LGBTQ community, especially, um, I shouldn't say especially, but where I tend to focus is the gay male population a lot. Even today, there are very few resources or conversations happening around dating, sex, relationships. And the last one is faith. Mm-hmm. And so I try to spend time covering those kinds of subjects because I found that people just want a space to ask the questions. I mean, my husband and I do not hold our relationship up as some kind of example at all. We have our own issues and challenges. Although you guys are adorable. <laughs> Thank you. But... People oftentimes feel comfortable to ask us about our relationship and about relationships in general, which tells me there's not a lot of space mm-hmm. to just have those conversations. So that's kind of the gathering part of what I do. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then you've got your, is it Fab 50? Yeah, that's part of the gathering as yeah. well, you know. yeah. So I was writing for a local LGBTQ publication at the time, which no longer exists. But um, I found that when I turned 50, it was kind of like, this is a weird place to be in the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. Like, um, it's kind of invisible. I I began to feel invisible. um, Because when you're 40-something, 40, even when you turn 40, you're kind of considered, ah, yeah, you know, you're... You're, you're getting towards that older mark, but you're still, you know, I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of information about being 40-something in the LGBTQ community. It tends to be, in my experience, to be um, like how to stay young at 40 and how to, you know, and there's uh-huh. all this like, oh, look at these 40-year-olds who are doing men. this. And yes, yeah, all this kind of stuff. And then there's some information once you become retirement age because then you're valuable to a whole nother demographic at that uh-huh. point, <laughs> well, <they're laughs> spending demographic. But once you're in that 50 and up, there's nothing. Mm. I don't ever see articles written about 50 somethings. It's mm-hmm. like, eh, you know, we don't, we care about you when you're 40 and then we'll, we'll check back in when you're 65. Yeah. 
It's like, is it that they expect that you've just kind of got things figured out? So like, you just mm-hmm. don't need to be bothered with like, oh, you're doing your own thing now. Like, we're not worried about talking about your sexuality. We're mm-hmm. not worried about talking about your relationships and your happiness. But the truth is, especially in the gay male population, we are, this is the first generation to age in mass. That's what I was going to just ask about is, you know, is, is this also just kind of new territory because it of is. what the AIDS epidemic did to the gay male population? Yeah. In the this is the 80s first, and 90s. like I said, age in mass population, mm-hmm. like um, the population dwindled. That doesn't mean there aren't lots of couples who made it through that and so on and so forth. But this is the first time that a huge population is aging. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and frankly, there has never been really any kind of help, guides, mentoring, or anything for the LGBTQ population. We don't have, even today, there's more than ever, but even today, there's not tons of relationship resources. No, there's There's not. not. Tons of sex resources, you know. There's not a thought leader out there no. that's really focusing specifically on LGBT no. relationships. So, um, Fab 50 came out of me saying, this is a weird age. Like, <laughs> I, uh-huh. I didn't dislike it, but I was just kind of like, I feel like I'm considered really old now by a lot of the community, and yet I don't feel old. I feel like I've had a lot of great experiences, you know, but it was just this kind of weird thing. So I gathered some people together to write an article about this, uh-huh. about what it was like. Like we just shared our thoughts about what is it like now being 50 or older in the LGBTQ community. And out of that, we, I've gathered pretty much total strangers for this. Um, we took, I told them it would be 90 minutes and it ended up being four hours. Oh, wow. We sat and talked and shared and laughed and cried and it was just beautiful. And when all was said and done, I was originally just going to write that one article and be done with it. Mm-hmm. Everybody was like, we have to keep meeting. So we meet once a month at somebody's house and just socialize. But I always throw out a topic of conversation so that we can get a little deeper about something. But it's mm-hmm. not a, there's no agenda. It's not an activist group or anything. It's really just a place to connect with other people and be like, yeah. And, and I think... People need that. They do. And... I think my favorite thing out of the very first interview, my friend Amanda, who I met for the first time, and then when we did that interview, I have it on recording somewhere, when, and she's like, you know what? I'm 50, and I don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of been the thing. What I've realized when you get into this age bracket is you get clarity. Mm-hmm. You get clarity about what is most important and where to put your energies. Um, can we cuss on this? Absolutely. Okay. So I have a, uh, my philosophy is you only have so many fucks to give. Mm-hmm. And so you got to choose carefully where you put them because you can't care about everything. Right. And so now in our society, there are more opportunities to care than ever before. Yeah. <laughs> like, you, and know, you can't care more than somebody else about something that's important to them. Right. I think that's been an important lesson. And there's also kind of an expectation, an unspoken expectation that we're all supposed to be caring equally about everything, you know? Yeah. It's like you can get onto social media and it's like, well, if you care about race issues, you need to be involved in these XYZ organizations, events, so on and so forth. If you care about women's issues, you got to do that. If you care about LGBT, you know, it's like the list gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I have had to realize, you know, I care about all of that, but I, I still have a life to live too. And I can only 
give so much energy to so many things. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes I watch some of, I really sound old saying this. Sometimes I watch some of the younger generations and I'm just like, there's probably wants to be the old man saying, Oh, bless your heart, honey. You're going to figure this out one of these days, you know, <laughs> That's such a Texas thing to say. <laughs> it is, you know, oh my God. but it's just, you know, that feeling of like, yeah, you do that. But eventually you are going to find that you can't keep that up. Yeah. You're going to you burn can't. out mm-hmm. and you're not able to really give of yourself entirely in the best way possible when you're spreading yourself so thin that you're right. just, you're giving a 5% effort everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, how we originally met was through the, the mentoring program with the elevation. Okay. I want to get it right. So fast track. Elevation we are, the, we are, let me, let me help you with it. <laughs> so we are the small, but Missouri's SBDC, small business development center. And at the SBDC, we have the Elevation Lab, which is where all of our training programs and classes happen. And you came through the Elevation Lab New Venture class, in which I was a co-facilitator. Okay. It just changed your name so many times. Yes, I want to make sure you get I it know. right there. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I have found to be really interesting about Kansas City is that there's a lot of resources for entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many avenues that you can go through. But I was really glad I went through your program and... The, the mentoring aspect is fantastic, but the fact that there's just so many resources out there. So I really just want to talk a moment about uh, kind of Kansas City and entrepreneurship and like where where you kind of see mentoring being here as, as part of your goal with, with that specifically. Well, I went through the same program as you, and that's how I got involved in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I went through it for the sake of Joel Speaks Out. And I, because of my background, my personality, I've always been a mentor, coach, minister you know (laughs) um so I work well with people I care about people I like investing in the lives of people and I've pretty much always done that through whatever it is that I'm doing Mm -hmm. so when I went through that program to try to help me solidify some things about my own business they were like hey um they'd been observing me and they were like you're pretty good at this Mm -hmm. and they were like would you like to come on board and take up take some clients up? So I'm like, sure. Well, that was a couple of years ago, and the role has just expanded. Um, and so now I uh, facilitate or co-facilitate one, two, three, four different classes, uh, possibly a fifth this year. Mm-hmm. I um, have about 150 coaching clients that I mentor, coach, um, I don't know, seeing all of them at any one time, mm-hmm. but, and that number just continues People kind to of rotate grow. in and out. Yeah. Right, sometimes. Yeah. Um, so I do a lot of one-on-one coaching and connecting people to other resources. And so I love it, um, because it's a really good match for all of the things that I'm good at and that I enjoy. Mm-hmm. And, um, Kansas city is one of the best places in the nation to be an entrepreneur because Kansas city supports its entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, there are about 200 organizations dedicated to entrepreneurship in some form here in Kansas City, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And then there's, um, you know, there's certain pots of money to tap into from time to time. I don't want to give the impression that there's a bunch of money sitting out there waiting to be claimed, but right. there are opportunities. Yeah, there's investors out there. Yeah, and there's, the right and there's some, you know, sometimes it'll be a contest or, you know, things like that. And so there are opportunities out there. Um, but most, most importantly is the city invests in its entrepreneurs. So 
if you're starting a business in Kansas City and you have that address here, the city will subsidize um, these entrepreneurship classes. So it's a great place to really um, try your hand at a business. And what we're trying to do is get you to make the smallest risk possible and to mm-hmm. be prepared rather than just going out there with what we call hopes and dreams, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, Kansas City is great for that. Kansas City is great for new business, for artists, for, you know, it's just a great place. And so I love my work there. It allows me to invest in the lives of people and see them grow. Yeah. I definitely learned a lot. Uh, you talk about the hopes and dreams. Um, you also got to, I think, as an entrepreneur, realize that hopes and dreams and funding mm-hmm. are the well, hard part. You can't. You're not gonna. You're not gonna be able to hang your head on getting funding early on. No. Nope. You're gonna have to really bootstrap and do your own thing. Cause the number one thing that entrepreneurs need is customers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you need capital. If you don't have customers, customers, then you don't have a business. You have a hobby. Yeah. And so. That's kind of, in a nutshell, what we try to help people. In fact, I one of the classes I teach, which is called Entrepreneurial Mindset Training, um, we go through a, a exercise, but I firmly believe one of the worst things that you can give to an entrepreneur is money. Mm-hmm. Because waste it. the moment I fund your business, you stop thinking about your business and you just start doing your hopes and dreams that are not based in reality mm-hmm. and research. It's not saying that entrepreneurs don't need money, but if we just had a big pot of gold that every time somebody came in with an idea, we gave them money, we'd be wasting a ton of money. Yeah. Honestly, in the class, I think once you guys got to the point where you talked about you won't get funding until you're to the point where you kind of don't need funding, which means your business is self-sustaining because you've you've built up your Mm -hmm. customer base, you're selling your product, you're doing your thing. I think we lost about half the class after that week, so... I mean, it's it's not to say that it's a, it's just that people drop off because they realize that either they didn't have the best idea yeah. or it's not something that's going to be sustainable in the long run. And sometimes um, like... they need to go back to the drawing board. Yeah. And I, I think people sometimes come through and they get discouraged. And to us, what that means is not that you had a bad idea. It just means you need to come up you need to find the migraine problem not the mm-hmm. headache problem yeah so if you come in with a headache problem and you may realize oh people won't actually pay me money to do this doesn't mean it's a bad idea it just means you haven't hit upon the migraine problem mm-hmm. yet or and, there's other people that have the solution to the headache out there yeah yeah and so it's just a, a matter of that as well as when we come to class we always say there are three possible outcomes all of which are a success one is uh, you go through this and you go, wow, this was great. You helped me so much. I'm going to start my business now. Thanks for all the help. The other is come through and go, wow, this was great. But I think now I realize that I actually want to do this other idea instead. My, my idea has changed and evolved. That's a success. Or if you come to the class and say, you know what? This was great. And I realized I don't think it's for me. Mm-hmm. I think I need to go get a job. Yeah. We also consider that a success. Yeah. And I'm glad that I came out the other end going like, yes, I'm going to do this. this yes, good. exactly. I mean, I've had and to work very hard at it the last couple of years, yeah. but um, it's been worth it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely been worth it. Um, I wouldn't trade being an entrepreneur for anything. I mean, I'm, I'm still working on building the business. Um, I love finding new clients all the time, which you're probably like me. It's a lot of in-person networking and mm-hmm. word of mouth and referral and mm-hmm. things like that. Because advertising for something like our services is kind of challenging. Yeah, it can be. Yeah, it's definitely about relationships. I mean, I don't, there are those that will just be, you know, um, 
just searching the internet for something. But overall, um, I think especially with your services, it's people need to feel a certain level of comfort and connection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's kind of like choosing a a doctor. You want to feel good with them or a therapist. You know, mm-hmm. and so when you're talking about something like sex. People need to feel like, ah, and I feel safe with her. Yeah. And I can have this conversation. I think you project that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I've done a few TV appearances here in town. I know you have. Yeah. I think people have said that watching me on those has made them be like, oh, yeah, of course I'd love to go talk Mm -hmm. about sex and relationships Mm -hmm. with her because they see that I just, I am calm about it. I'm pretty matter matter of factual about things and I'm just, you know, I don't take life too seriously, but I mean, when it gets down to it, I can... Sit down and say, like, great, let's, let's get down to the details. Yeah. And, and I think have that... something serious here. Sex in particular, like, I don't know why we look at it so differently. It's a... This is going to sound really crass, but at its core level, it's bodily functions. Right. And so we are uncomfortable talking about how to scratch your leg, you know, or how to comb your hair or clean your ears or whatever. You know, like, we yeah. could talk about... Instead of about sex, it's like, ooh... And it's, it's because there's intimacy involved. And mm-hmm. that's really what we're afraid to talk about yeah. is intimacy. Not, not the bodily function. And a lot of times people want to get hung up on how things work, the mm-hmm. mechanics. And it's like, if you can achieve intimacy, in a sense, it matters far less about what the mechanics are that are happening. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. And I mean, with, with what I do, I have my places where I feel really comfortable and confident walking up to somebody and saying I am a sex coach and mm-hmm. then those are the places that I soften the blow by mm-hmm. saying things like I'm a relationship dating and sex coach mm-hmm. so but it there have been times where yeah I've gotten the feedback of you're you're a little too forward you're you're you, you talk about things that just are inappropriate I'm like I I'm not talking about my my <laughs> life and my things, but yeah, that's very subjective about what's inappropriate. <laughs> agreed, agreed. And I, I mean, I have to take a step back and go, okay, is this? Did I say it in the wrong place? Is it the wrong time? Is this the wrong person? Is it just how they're interpreting mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And there's a lot of layers there mm-hmm. because we bring a lot. We're carrying a lot with us, and so you know, in those situations, it could be completely them. The, the, ultimately, what they're saying is. I'm not comfortable talking about any of this, you know, mm-hmm. has but nothing by to do. pushing it off on me as being mm-hmm. inappropriate. That shuts me down. So I heard rather than them being vulnerable or honest yeah. and saying like, I'm uncomfortable with what you're exactly. saying. Exactly. Yeah. You're making me uncomfortable. You know, that's okay. I mm-hmm. get that. You know, um, I heard, uh, yesterday I spoke at unity temple on the plaza mm-hmm. And it was a really beautiful experience. And one of the um, pastors there, I, I, I don't remember what all their terms are, but she's one of the reverends. Uh, <clears throat> I don't remember where they call them pastors or mm-hmm. not. But um, anyway, we had a conversation afterwards, a small group conversation to kind of like continue the conversation of what was covered in the service. And um, I don't remember exactly. Oh, she was talking about like family members and things who are extremely homophobic and, you know, are very uncomfortable talking about this. And so I think this is a good analogy or a good crossover thing to use. I'm going to start using this. And she said that like she has family members and if they're like, like, Oh, you know, I'm just, you know, kind of like, I don't mind people being gay, but they don't need to put it in our face and all those kinds of statements. Mm -hmm. What she says back to them is, so tell me what buttons does that press for you? Ooh, I like that. And it's like, 
you know, it's, it's not accusatory. It's not saying, what's wrong with you? Why are you like that? Or why are you so uncomfortable? It's just saying, what, what buttons does that press for you? And she said, most of the time they can't answer. Mm-hmm. Or they don't want to answer. You know? If they don't want to answer, <clears throat> they can't answer it. It comes down to their, their socialization, what mm-hmm. they may be hiding. But I thought, a lot of it that's things. brilliant. I like that. And I think that you could use that a lot with people that are very uncomfortable. It's just mm-hmm. be like, oh, well, what, what buttons does that press for you? I love it. Mm-hmm. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. I'm yes. totally going to steal that. <laughs> I am too. I'm going to use it. <laughs> well, it's it's very raw for me right now because I actually had this conversation uh, the other night with somebody. And I, was, I was told that I was inappropriate and I was just racking my brain trying to think about what what did I say? What did I bring up? What did I do? Well, and then I realized it was that I had run to the bathroom very quickly because I'd had some caffeine that day. And then I got in the process of talking about how I'd had... You know, I'm getting old lady bladder is what I call mm-hmm. it. And I was like, dang it. The only thing that that vaginal rejuvenation didn't fix was my caffeine. You know, when I have caffeine, I've really still got to go to the bathroom. She was like, um. Uh... And I was oh, sorry. Maybe I shouldn't have said that in front of you. But at the same time, it's literally just something I did to not have urge incontinence. Well, and The other I mean, stuff was the byproduct, but yes, it's called vaginal rejuvenation. Yeah, I mean. If... And I've written about it. I've talked about it. It's been on my website, like. But you said this person knows what I do. You said the word. I said vaginal. the word vaginal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you, you probably could have said all of that and left vaginal restoration out. If I had just said I had that procedure yes. so that I wouldn't pee my pants uh-huh. anymore. But I know you're <laughs> like me. I'm like I don't mind making people uncomfortable. Like I, part of me is like you need to be. Yeah. You need yes. to be uncomfortable. I agree. And I don't do that intentionally to hurt or anything. But at the same time, no, we're going to have real conversation here. And mm-hmm. I know how to be respectful about it, you know. But we're going we're gonna to be real. Because mm-hmm. I value that and I know you do too. I do. Yeah. That's why I wear a button that says penis and vagina are not bad words at networking right. events. Mm-hmm. And not at just gay, lesbian, chamber events. Uh, we're around a lot and it... it has stopped people dead in their tracks to where they look at my lapel and go, oh, okay, what do you do? Uh-huh. Started some interesting conversations. I bet. But, uh, yes, I, I am often accused that I'm just very matter-of-fact about mm-hmm. sex, and I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. I, I love the fact that people are like, wow, you're just like, you say penis, you say mm-hmm. vagina, you say masturbation, you say anus, whatever, with mm-hmm. the utmost confidence. And I'm like, yeah, think of me as it's like language. Dr. Ruth. Their body parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know why we've come up with nicknames for all of that and those are okay. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's just kind of dumb. Like, if, if you can talk about it with nicknames, then you should be able to talk about yeah. it with the real names. If you can say jerking off, you mm-hmm. should be able to say masturbate. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, it's just a swapping out of words and actually the one is more appropriate than the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Well, I'm working on that with people. I, I mean, I've, I've had clients that are in their 40s and 50s who can't say vagina. Mm-hmm. So. Well, and, you know, if you're taught that throughout your life, mm-hmm. you know, that you, by your parents or however you socialize, that can be really, it can be really hard. It can. I so. mean, yeah. I, I remember when I was raising my own children, I, I... When I came out, so much changed about everything about me and how I approached life. And that was when I was like, you know what? I'm going to be real with them about sex. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to use the right terms. And we're going to talk about sex. And we're not going to be, have this modesty freak out, you know, 
Um, while I didn't always do everything right, and probably if you talk to them, they might remember things a little differently. <laughs> but I know it was very intentional on my part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. It needs to be. I wish I had had. That. I don't. I don't ever really remember having the like. Don't say vagina or don't say penis talk. It was just more of it wasn't talked about. Mm-hmm. So I hope to get out there and just empower other people to feel more comfortable and confident talking about it. Let me tell you. And what you don't have to use this, but if you don't want to, but let me tell you a story about. When my dad had the talk with me. Please do. I'll tell you mine too. <laughs> so when I started puberty in fifth grade, mm-hmm. unbeknownst to anybody, mm-hmm. but that's when hair started appearing and, you know, so on and so forth. And I became more aware of my body, mm-hmm. even though I wasn't like really, I don't think outwardly when I look back at pictures of that, I don't see a lot of like evidence just from street view, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But then uh, when I was 13, by the time I was 13, I was six foot tall. And then by the time I was 15, I was six five. Wow. So needless to say, there was a very rapid growth and change during those years, mm-hmm. probably from 12 to 15. Mm-hmm. And then I stayed this height. So throughout that entire process, <laughs> nothing had ever been said. Nothing. Uh, and... When I was 15, 6'5", my dad sat me down in the bedroom. And I think I kind of knew there was something really awkward about it. And so I thought, mm-hmm. I don't know what's going on here, but, you know. And I remember him saying, this was this was his entire conversation with me. Sat down. He's like, so, you may notice your body changing. <laughs> like, yeah. Inside, okay. I was like, you mean more than this? <laughs> like, what's coming? Yeah. Like, what's next? And then he's like. Um, and you may get an erection and if you do, don't worry about it. It will go away. And he's like, if you have any questions, let me know. That was it. Just go away. Well, how do I make it go away? (laughs) And in my mind, literally, like I so wanted this conversation to end and Frankly, it ended very quickly, which was a good thing in my mind. Mm-hmm. But I was also kind of laughing inside like, oh, dad, you You're have a little no too idea. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, I know more about this than that. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. A little too late. A yeah. little too late. A lot too late. Mm-hmm. My talk was non-existent. I literally got no, no sit down when I was like, Four or five of my parents were pregnant the first time after me. They told me they were pregnant. And I remember asking my dad some questions. And the only thing I remember deducing out of that conversation was that it took nine months to make a baby and that my parents weren't married for nine months before I came along. So I think my mom was kind of pissed at my dad when I came back inside. I was asking more questions about conception and dates and stuff like that and figuring that How all out. How old were you? Four. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. You were you were a pretty smart four year old. Four or five. Yeah, but to, to I remember, think I just through that. The haircut that I had. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, well, when's the baby coming? And my dad like said, oh, let's do it. I was like, so then how long does it take? And he goes nine months. So then I counted it up, and then I counted it backwards. I go January, December, and his his eyes were getting wide. And then he helped me count backwards. I remember that because he just rather uh-huh. than shut me down, he just did. I was like, so wait, but you're yeah. I remember putting that together out in the backyard. That's funny. Yeah. And uh, then in school, they just let school 
tell mm-hmm. me the you know where the ovaries were and what yeah. penis and testes were, but <laughs> there was no talk about mm-hmm. intercourse some very design clinical or relationship video or movie, right? School nurse. Yes. I remember her standing there going, "Your ovaries are right about here," and pointing to her, you know, about her hip bones mm-hmm. and talking about periods and and all that stuff, but. I never got to talk to my parents about sex, desire, don't do the... Mm-hmm. I got a lot of don'ts once I got yeah. in my teenage years, but it was never a big conversation. Right, right. Yeah, it's pretty common. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, when I told them what I wanted to do with this business, I, I don't think that they were shocked, but I think that they uh, still think it's such a far cry from my upbringing mm-hmm. that they're just a little like... My mom, I said, what are you going to tell people? Are, are you going to say that I'm becoming a sex coach? She goes, I think I'll tell them that you're a life coach. So, sex is part of life. So, Sex is part of life. I, I mean, she doesn't have social media. Yeah. She doesn't have an iPhone. She doesn't listen to my podcast. Okay. And my dad, my dad has like 85 alerts on his um, phone alone just from voicemails that he doesn't listen to so he doesn't know how to work iTunes either and listen to a podcast but it's kind of nice I can just talk about them freely on here and not worry (laughs) about them ever hearing about it so sorry mom and dad you Mm. really did a poor job teaching me about sex and relationships so now I'm going to get out there and teach the world about it instead so well it's been a pleasure having you on the show today I'm glad you came by to have a conversation being here thank you Maybe I'll, oh, there goes my cat sneezing right there at the end. Cat. He was quiet this whole time. But again, I maybe I'll have you on again in the future. Yeah. And um, yeah, we should and talk likewise. more about yes. sexual Sunday school. We'll do some collaborating. Absolutely. I love that. So thanks, Joel. All right. Thanks for listening to Keep Them Coming with Open the Doors Coaching. You can find me on Facebook at Open the Doors Coaching. Twitter and Instagram at Open the Doors KC. And you can check out my show notes for links to things that I mentioned during the episode. Of course, I'd love it if you would rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. You can also visit my website, OpenTheDoorsCoaching.com, if you want more information about me and my coaching services. You can also subscribe to the Dirty Bird email newsletter for more tips from me. Until next time.